So we must have your comment. What do you think of it? What's going on? Mr. Beaton. What gives? What's happening? We decided to play for the public for nothing. Uh -huh. Well, that's great. It's a bloody stupid place to have a concert. Nice to have something for free in this country at the moment, isn't it? No, I mean, no. Do you like it? No. No? No. Not at all. Not now. They've changed completely. The Beatles are doing a free concert on the roof. Nah. Yeah, what do you think of it? I think it's very good. Why aren't they doing it in the street? They just thought you'd like to hear it. Yeah, well, what, well we'd also like to see them. I just can't see that they make sense. Well, I think it's a very good thing. It woke me up from my sleep, but I don't like it. <laughs> I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Eric Taros. The Beatles. Naked. Richard, uh, it feels like it was a month ago that we saw the first episode. It's only <laughs> two days ago. This is, without question, far and away, so much more than I ever expected. Oh, yeah. I agree. And, and, and I heard the numbers, oh, it's eight hours, or seven hours, or six hours, whatever the hell we heard. 
I wasn't prepared for the emotional journey. I wasn't prepared for feeling like I'm seeing something. I'm seeing these guys I've lived with for the first time. Yeah. And and I think the if we had to wait 50 years for this, it was worth every minute because it's it's just I was completely unprepared for the emotional journey. <clears throat> How interesting and I don't know if this was by Peter Jackson's design or not, but I start in this horrible place. Really? Mm. You know, Twickenham to me it was a, a terrible decision in many ways, but it becomes the hero's journey. And at, at the end, you, you're in this incredible place at, at Savile yeah. Row with this joyous show with, you know, once again, Paul McCartney and his you know, precognition. I, I think I could do a whole film on that throughout the career. But here we are again where the police are coming to end the show, just how he yeah. kind of, as a joke, thought about it. And, and I know there's a little bit of contrived in this, you know, but but it's just, I, I can't process all well, this. Well, basically, what we've now got is something where it's triumphant, okay? It's sad to know what came after this. I don't just mean about the band split, but that this turned into a major headache. You know, remixes of the album, the film being re-edited, and it turned into an unholy mess, basically. And that's a real pity, because where it ends in this documentary, it's a triumph. It it is, and it's interesting that it took so long. I I think everything gets colored by events surrounding things. Whatever you're doing, you remember your emotional state more than the work. You know, because you and I both, you you as an author and me as a designer, you know, I can look at things that other people I've, I've designed, and I'm sure are things you've written, and people go, oh, "That's marvelous, Richard," and you're going, "Oh, is a miserable bastard. I hated that thing." Yeah, and, it, and the same thing happens to me as a designer. But uh, you know, this is a classic example of that because you look at this, and it is the most incredible of all Beatles projects, because we see how they did it. Oh, man. It's just, we've never seen anything like this. You know, what if we had a bit of Hey Jude, you know, in the studio, and, you know, some silent footage of them in the studio? We really had very, very little, plus let it be. You could make the argument, the raw footage of And I Love Her, you know, from 64, is is a glimpse, an early yeah. glimpse. But it's not this, because you're still getting the feeling that George Martin is the over hmm. overlord. And in this, George Martin is like, get in here and do your job. You know, like yeah. the, the relationship six years later or, or five years later, it's markedly different. Oh, God, and, yeah. and the and, I can I could hear Lennon's voice in in so much of this series about Yoko saying, "Well, how would you feel being in, stuck in a little room with these four egos?" Yeah, and they really are. Even Ringo is like this whole thing. The the greatest thing about this to me is like, "Hurry up, Ringo's got a film date at the end of the month." <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I'm just grateful to have lived long enough to see this, yeah. and I'm sad for those fanatics who didn't. That, and then I also think, why the hell didn't they do this sooner? You know, why why didn't they do this with every record? You know, can you imagine if we were watching Sgt. Pepper like this? Can right. you imagine? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's. I'm already uh, about as emotionally destroyed by a Beatles project as ever, which is great. This last episode is very emotional for me. We'll get to that, because that oh, yeah, please. when we got to the concert. Please. But, uh, I'm already verklempt. 
Yeah, I mean, I know that there was some stuff that we didn't mention about episode two. Like we said, everything's in the moment. We, we've done these shows, literally, we've watched, you know, the latest installment, and then we record our review. So these are in-the-moment reviews, not time to dig into it and, you know, re-watch and know every little nuance and all the funny quotes. Absolutely. You're taking notes. I'm taking notes. We're taking notes independent of each other, which is interesting what we both have chosen to write down over the mm-hmm. last three days. Talking last night um, about what we missed in the first episode, and, and I had kind of a second episode, and I jumped out with this thing of, you know, here's Paul in this very emotionally draining you know, thing where he's vibrating and he's chewing on his thumb and he just looks like he's processing a death as a, and he is, because mm. he figures, and then, you know, the, and then there were two um, statement and then he's just sitting there in an almost paralyzed state and then Mal comes in and says, you should take a call from Lennon, you know, that, that sort yeah. of typical white cliffs of Dover, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with that voice, God, yeah. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm a big Mal fan, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? I love Mal, mm-hmm. and I, he's like one of the guys around them I wish I had met, just because he was such a fan of everything. But the thing is, is after Paul takes the call from Lennon, where he obviously very briefly, because he seems to walk right back into the frame, um, and Paul is in a different mood. He's coming in. He's gonna be here in an hour. Yeah, and and that that's a blessed relief. And all of a sudden, he's different. Paul's different. He's in a different place. And they start. They get back onto God love Lindsay Hogg saying, "Well, you know, well if Africa's out, we could we could go to Brighton Beach. I don't know." And and Linda <laughs> just kind of chirps in, "Oh, Brighton Beach would be nice." And Paul, with a big smile and in the best of intentions, says, why don't you stay out of it, Yoko? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. And, and once again, the precognition. In 50 years' time, yeah. people will say they broke up because Yoko sat on an amp. I'm sorry. That's amazing. I, I'm so serious about this precognition, this psychic ability that man has. <laughs> it's very supernatural. And, and literally, I, I really think somebody should do, maybe me, an in-depth, in-depth thing about that because it just keeps cropping up. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go back to Melanie Coe, who he meets in 63 and then writes a song about four years later yeah. when she runs away from home. I mean, it's yeah. just nuts, this guy. He's just in a different level, you know, and uh, I know sometimes you and I get a little bit of stick about, well, maybe mostly you, about being anti-McCartney. We're so not. I mean, we worship this guy and and pretty much, you know. I just hold him to a Beatles standard. That's basically Well, but he's, you know what's great about this in three days? Thank God it's edited the way he comes across as the most human character to me. Well, to me, he comes over, honestly. I mean, there are degrees of genius, but he comes over as genius because, you know, something I want to point out is that we always talk for John the well ran dry in terms of composing new songs. He only brings whatever it is, you know, four or five songs, and some of them were composed, you know, a year earlier. And, you know, something, it's just been a few months since the White Album. And so for anyone to then... Since the White Album, in like whatever it is, two and a half months, three months, to have now come up with another few songs is pretty damn good. It's just by comparison with Paul, who's on a whole other planet. I mean, what's he bring in? About 17 songs? You know, and then he's just... giving them away, too. I mean, <sighs> goodbye. I mean, that yeah. could have been a hit single for anyone. He just gives it to Mary. You know, I've said it many times, and it bears saying again, 68, 69, Paul. 
you know, even within the context of everything that came before and after, unbelievably on fire. I don't know of any other popular music composer that could not write not that. as not as with that type of power and the, that the type quantity of ease. and quality of material. I always love that story of him going in to do the demo of Come and Get It. And, and in his own words, I think he's, all right, lads, do it this way, and it's a hit. It's just like, yeah, it's yeah. a hit, you know, no big deal. Yeah. So yeah, the other thing we were mentioning about, we were talking last night, things that we might have missed, was, it was we'll be watching this thing, these pieces, for years. And I was saying to you that it was a little bit like the old show uh, Candid Camera, where as a kid, I used to watch that show, and you'd obviously be distracted by whatever the gag is. But as a later, as an older kid in in college in in the film department, I started watching what's happening in the background. It's all right. this natural footage of New York City. Most of those things were gags were done in New York, and and just the the realness that nobody would bother. I always tell people, if you have children, just take a random morning, not Christmas. And film the morning, going down for breakfast, the kids off to school and stuff, and then put it away. And in 10 years' time, that will entertain you more than anything on the planet because of the real-life element, the things that weren't planned or staged. Mm. So all that stuff that's going on in the background. It's a bit like an airplane movie, right? You know, those Zucker Brothers movies where you, you know, there's sort of comedy in the foreground, but you've really got to look at the background for some other quips. Exactly. And I feel, I, I said this to you last night, I remember thinking that... Um, these are three, this is like finding three Rosetta Stones on top of the one we have. And yeah. you're like, holy crap, we're going to learn all this stuff from just watching this again you know. and making notes. Did you catch, after George leaves, the other three have a hug? I missed that. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, I mean, I obviously, you know, I feel like this whole thing, I almost feel like I'm going to wake up from and it hasn't happened yet. And this is my yeah. imagination making these incredible emotional movies. Right. I, I mean, agree. for us, did we hit a home run here or what? A oh, grand slam and then some. And and you had mentioned it wouldn't have been this great if not for a tragic event. The pandemic. I mean, yeah, I'm, you know, I don't want to celebrate the pandemic, that's for sure. But we have to say it was going to be a theatrical release. And yeah, maybe there'd be some extras on the DVD or Blu-ray. Who knows? May not. We would have never got this. You know, it gave Peter Jackson like another couple of years to keep working on it and tweaking it and keep increasing how much we were going to see. So it really is, you know, thanks to Peter Jackson, thanks to that whole team, yeah. everyone oh, yeah. involved with this. This is an absolute, uh, yeah. I mean, thanks, you know, as a film reviewer, I would really, you know, five stars out of five. It, it's absolutely superb. There's an exceedingly strong woman uh, who is, you know, the B side of Peter Jackson, Claire, and uh, who works at Wingnut, and um, I, I see her stamp, uh, you know, her guidance on this as well. I, I just think, you know, part of the blessing also is we were talking last night, you and I, and I said, you know, four years ago when he started this, the technology, all of the technology he used to complete it was not there. So he was taking a giant leap of faith. He who knows more about, he who's on the forefront of technology. I mean, obviously that that, that thing he did with World War One's film, you know, they yeah. shall not grow old. It's just a technical tour de force. This is too, in that some of the footage couldn't have been saved without, you know. I know people say, "Eh, it's too much smoothing." 
Well, certainly in this last chapter we just saw, and we'll get onto it in a minute, there was not too much smoothing because he really, it was just a straight cleanup of stuff. There was not a lot of... But explain what you were saying about, you know, the ratio and how stuff is getting cropped and how he's zooming well, in. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, this whole thing, and there's even a moment where Paul, and at the end of yesterday's episode, where Paul is talking with George about, well, you know, if we knew this was going to be a theatrical release would have shot it in, we should have shot it in 35 which would have been really expensive i mean 16 was bad enough you had a two camera setup for most of this obviously at the rooftop you've got more cameras but um it's very hard for people to understand the concept of a 4-3 ratio when you watch the third episode you're going to be more conscious of what a 4-3 ratio is the old format of what television screens looked like around the world and what i mean by that is you're going to see double and triple screens in the final scenes and that is in correct ratio i'd be quite convinced that nothing was cropped there but for the rest of what we've been watching you're zooming in and very skillfully doing something that used to be called pan and scan. Yeah. Okay, so when they used to show a theatrical thing shot in widescreen or whatever, you know, 16 by 9, on TV you couldn't do that. So for you older people, you might remember seeing the credits of, of a Hollywood film and it looked all squashed. Yes, <laughs> you know, they yeah. would be tall, so they get the words running through it. So, And the rest of the movie looked okay because they were kind of cropping in on images. Well, that's one thing to do on a 35 millimeter, you know, that was shot and lit properly. This is kind of seat of the pants, uh, sixteen mil, and and that's that great moment where Paul and George are kind of talking, and George is like, "Oh, it should blow up fine," and, yeah. and, and I think Ringo says, "Oh, you got to use, you know, whichever whichever Kodak film he he mentioned and what speed," but the skill with which the sixteen mil was made into sixteen by nine is nothing short of astounding to me as somebody that went to film school for a while mm-hmm. and just like. That technology was not there. And, you know, for those people who say, oh, you know, I don't like the smoothing or whatever. Explain the smoothing for people. Because they were operating in situations that weren't daylight and they were inside and and the lighting, in only a few scenes does the lighting become obtrusive. They're kind of trying to get away with as natural a lighting situation as they can. So they have to use... Uh, a film that's going to be grainier. The faster the film, the grainier it gets. You start seeing bits, you know, and noise, uh, sometimes we call it. Well, if everything was shot and left in the original ratio, you wouldn't need any smoothing. But what they're doing in this series is they are, number one, making something that's 4-3 into 16 by 9. So you're cutting out the top and the bottom, presumably, or maybe just all the top in some shots. But what that does is as you blow that up, the grain gets bigger. Now, in some scenes where you're looking at Billy Preston's hands on the piano keys, I know they've blown that up. If they had kept blowing it up, you'd be going from kind of a pleasantly grainy shot to a not-so-pleasant grainy shot to grain that's the size of a, of a mandarin orange. You know, it's just distracting. So the smoothing process is an AI thing. It's uh, artificial intelligence that's only been around recently where you can run this thing through and... What's so fascinating about using this technology is is it uh, it starts learning what you want to do. The more you feed stuff into it and you give it keyframes, you kind of give it hints here and there, say so kind of digitally retouch something by hand and say, okay, like this. The thing starts to know, oh, okay, you know, those are fingers, <laughs> you know. And so to me, the smoothing was only evident 
uh, it was never distracting. It was evident in some scenes where they had to blow the crap out of something up so you could, you know, emphasize, mm. you know. And so you weren't distracted by certain things. It was just masterful. And like yeah. I say, when he began this project, the technology he was using by the end of the project wasn't there. So there was versions of this out four years ago, but not like it is now. And right. I'm sure he had to redo bits. Yeah. Yeah, we had the perfect guy to helm this project, without a doubt. He will go down in Beatles history as a hero himself, Peter Jackson. This is just the most amazing gift. And and the decision-making and the subtlety of the decision-making, it makes him the sixth Beatle uh, because he's, you know, there's things in there. Even just us watching this at first pass... um, there's Beatlesque subtlety. <laughs> there's a, there's humor that's so hidden. Yeah, yeah. We get to see. Uh, I think I I don't remember if we said this on the broadcast yesterday or if we talked about it personally. But you know, Lennon especially has become a sort of almost Rodney Dangerfield to me. Where you know, I I think I know all the Rodney Dangerfield jokes because you know, well, let's talk about Doctor Vinnie Boom Bots or whatever. You know, these these kind of cliches. There's so many new Leninisms in oh, these yeah. three days. Yeah. And it just underscores the comedic... He was a comedic genius. So yeah. I, I don't think he gets enough credit I for agree. that. Yeah. I mean, one of the early ones is episode three gets off to a flying start. We have much more of Octopus's garden than in Let It Be, which is fascinating in and of itself. And we have a lot more of Heather... And, you know, the Beatles were always good with kids. It's funny, you might sort of think these tough Liverpool guys, you know, they wouldn't be interested in kids before they had them themselves. But they always, always seem to be good around kids, and they're really nice with Heather in the studio. And uh, Well, you can really see Paul's bonded with this yeah. six-year-old child already. I mean, yeah. you can see the family man that's about to be, and Heather's dad is still alive, yeah. but, but you can see the bond between the, the two of them. And, and once again, foreshadowment. Who's helping Ringo with Octopus's Garden? George. George, yeah. What's going to happen in a couple of years? Everybody knows about Lennon and McCartney, but what a great pity that we don't hear enough about Harrison Starr. Right, yeah, I agree. I mean, in terms of John's witticisms, I love it where Heather starts doing this kind of screech on Mike and John immediately turns around and goes, Yoko! <laughs> well, and then Heather starts talking about kit- kittens. Yes. And, and that uh, one of the things that worked when I was raising my son was absurdist humor, when yeah. you'd pick up on something the kid would say and you'd make it more crazy. Yeah. And the kid realizes in a wh- wait a minute. Well, John's not- talking about eating the eating kitten. kittens, <laughs> and you know, and Heather starts giggling like yeah. you just started laughing. Well, yeah. of course, it's absurd. You don't eat kittens. Yeah. But you know, John sees he's getting a reaction, and he keeps going with it. I mean, it is. It's there's so many lessons that, in all this. That whole segment is lovely. They have this sort of dig it type arrangement of twist and shout that then evolves into dig it. And here we have some really nice editing showing all the activity in the studio, in the control room, Heather dancing and being thrown in the air by Paul. And it's just like a great atmosphere to start episode three. The band is also really grooving in a way that never came over it in any parts of Let It Be for me. Yes, you've watched the progression from complete awkwardness and ineptitude in many ways to... 
They are they are an engine, and they could have gone if you know George Martin at the end is talking about you guys have started something here. Can you imagine if they had done a, another month of this and yeah. then gone on the road with that? Oh, absolutely. That, I, I mean, you know, enormous. they're rocking on blue suede shoes, shake, rattle, and roll. That isn't them being directionless, as it's often being framed. They're just really grooving as a band. You know, it's they're solid. They've been playing now for you know whatever it is a few weeks almost every day and you can hear the tightness they're getting it back together it's it's as if they were back in the days when they had to play every day well they haven't rehearsed like that for years you know their last yeah. british tour as you know was just a quick was it mouse flat or somewhere where they had just a quick you know run through and then went out on their last tour of the uk yeah in late 65 and it wasn't i mean there's there's we don't have any recordings that have surfaced yet. We have a couple of, well, we have a film where we see what the set list was. Yeah. You know, and which is pretty adventurous. And by the time they do their final tour, they drop, you know, some of, you know, We Can Work It Out, for example, doesn't make it to the stage in 66, though it right. did in late 65. I love it, it. I love the syncopated version of Long and Winding Road. Oh yeah, that 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 of course showed up bootleg years yeah. ago. That was yeah. a startling bootleg back in the seventies. I remember that. But you know the blue you mentioned blue suede shoes, and you know the band is kind of hitting a high with these oldies. And what does John do in September? So this is January, yeah. but he opens with blue suede shoes yeah. up in Toronto. You know, it's yeah. he obviously they they did really rediscover. There were also some creative camera work that we saw in this episode. You know, there was the bit, do you notice, where it goes through the viewfinder of Linda's camera? Yes. So, yeah, so you actually sit and he's sort of going straight through it. And uh, also through John's arm, if you like, you know, between the arm and, and the body, look, looking towards Paul playing at the piano. So, you know, trying some different stuff there, um, which was never used either. You know what's interesting? The specter of Ray Charles. And what I mean by that is we have Ray Charles's backup keyboard player. You know, it's mentioned that Billy uh, played organ for Ray Charles uh, earlier on. We have uh, somewhere, uh, not in the series, but in, in text, we have the attribution of something as George writing a song thinking that Ray Charles would sing it. Yeah. And in this episode, Long and Winding Road apparently is inspired by Ray Charles as well from Paul. Right. So, so like I say, the, who would have thought? I know. And there's some foreshadowing with Long and Winding Road where George Martin suggests strings and Paul says he's not sure. So, you know, that's kind of interesting. The next day... They start off here with Shake, Rattle and Roll, Kansas City, Blue Suede Shoes, and... I have to, I have to yeah. interrupt. That suit that George is wearing is divine. I, I need that suit. I need to have that recreated. Which one? The one he's wearing for Shake, Rattle and Roll. Yeah, he's got the I, yeah, stripes but, and the big... Oh, that one, The yeah. purple shirt. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he just... He was really dressed to the nice. He, was, he made conscious efforts to dress, I think, George, almost more than the others. I'm glad that you're paying attention to I the, attention the fashions. I pay attention to everything. Well, I, yeah. keep, I keep hoping Patty's going to come in in something skimpy. <laughs> but once again, when they're playing those songs, often we see it superimposed over footage of you know them in the control room and stuff like that and i said yesterday you know i was kind of a bit bugged i'd like to have heard the audio that matched that if that audio exists which i strongly suspect it does i'm pretty sure that someone's going to sync it up very quickly eric probably yeah 
it, you know, this uh, you just going back to this point of the mo- of today's episode where you know how wonderful to see John and Paul jitterbugging. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> it's just, it's, just, it's those little moments that obviously I know that they've kind of hammed it up. I mean, you know, there's parts of the episode where you cut from Paul looking sort of longingly and John looking longingly, hopefully, you know, towards each other. Definitely the underlying bond and love was so completely uh, underscored by that lunchtime, you know, flower pot session yeah. in yesterday's episode. And it's just nice to see it flowering, yeah. no pun intended, um, in in this one where they're so loose with each other. Yes. It, it, the thing I come away from this episode today more than anything else is why, why, why didn't they just listen to George Martin, put it in another week? Yeah. And go out on the road with that. Well, because with- Ringo's film. <laughs> yeah. And and let's face it, the magic Christian, right? Well, yeah, I suppose you'd that have was never, such an artistic achievement. Well, you'd have never got to see Raquel Welsh in full dominatrix outfit, whipping, you know, topless slaves and saying in out. I forgot about that. Yeah, you see. Well, the, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> now, another fantastic section here. Old brown shoe. George has just composed it because he's on fire as well, relatively. Yeah, yeah, right? Let's yeah. not compare to Paul. That's just not fair. But he is, and so he brings in old brown shoe, and then we see Billy helping as George is playing it on the piano. I don't think we've ever seen George on the piano like this. Well, and and asking Billy, he's feeling chords. You know, I've always yeah. heard these people. I'm, I'm a terrible attempted musician. But I've always heard, you know, keyboard players, friends of mine that would say, well, you know, there's certain chords that just fall beneath your fingers yeah. and you don't even think about them. Yeah. And that's what's happening to George. And you say, Billy, what chord is this? I know. I know. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I know. And then, and then you've got, you know, Paul joins in on drums. Ringo's playing another keyboard. And then Paul gets on guitar. Billy is on guitar. Ringo on drums. And George still at the piano beginning to get a grip on his own composition. Um, and while Billy's playing the organ, I don't know if you heard Paul say that coming from Northern England, soul doesn't come too easily. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, oh, I did. That's that'll have to be on the on the you know subsequent viewing. I do remember. I wrote a note that Paul seems to be having a lot of fun on Old Brown Shoe. Yeah, he's enjoying yes. George's. Con- it's not like yes. we've got to help George. Right. It's more like wow, this is a fun song. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I think uh, George never accused Paul of being unenthusiastic about his songs. It was just getting him to work on his songs after he's worked on twenty of his own. Yeah, <laughs> of course, that's it. And another thing I wrote myself a note about, Ringo and I share a love of polka dots. Have you he, told Ringo that? Next time. Well, you know, we keep missing each other. You know, when we do our elbow bump next mm. time, I will mention, I, I, as a matter you, of fact, I will consciously wear a polka dot shirt just so he might say You should shirt. have a polka dot in your pocket. Uh, well, no, there's something else there, especially when Patty shows up. But she wasn't in this episode, unfortunately. But um, there, anyway, so what else? Have, I mean, <laughs> Well, this... what about when they're running through Oh Darling and John announces Yoko's divorce has just come through? Yes, the divorce mix, Yes, shall we say. Yes. And uh, it kind of recalls when you hear those session outtakes on the White Album where John gets his divorce as, uh, I'm free, or whatever yeah. that whole thing was, you know, during yeah. the... What, and what about the part where the Beatles leave the studio and members of the crew, including Alan Parsons, who's the tape op, and Chris Thomas, 
playing the Beatles instruments. That was so weird. Yeah, it was like, you know, the... I think the guy with the clapperboard was also playing, you the, know. It was like... the, the Rottens or something, you know. It's like yeah. early punk rock, um, you know. But but you know, the other thing that popped up, uh, one of the things that has always fascinated me about the Beatles that nobody talks about is anytime they were ever slighted, all of them remember it and they refer to it. It might be, you know, years later, uh, I remember... Mm. One of them was either George or John talking about, well, this latest Beatles release is not up to their standard. And we only put out two records before. What the hell's the Beatles standard? You know, meaning for me to you, I think, was like yeah. not quite up to snuff. Yeah. And, and they always remembered being slighted. Also, Michael Housko, the trash journalist for the Daily Sketch, they have another good laugh at him, this time about the article where he's got John pronouncing his love for Yoko. Yeah, this guy seemed to have a bug up his yeah. posterior. Yeah, and we have Paul singing lead on Strawberry Fields. That was nuts. Oh, once again, oh, a moment where you just go, what is this? Like, yeah. it makes you wonder. I, I mean, we've just been given the greatest gift ever, and I don't want to look it in the mouth. But you say, what else? We've now watched eight hours, essentially, of 56. Yes. <laughs> What's happening in... Those other hours well, that are throwaway moments like this, where yeah. you know one of them decides to do, you know, what was the other weird oldie that they did completely different besides "Please Please Me," I think, or whatever it was they did. They did a or love. They did a weird "Love Me Do" today. Yes, they did. But but it's kind of like what else is buried in that? I know. Where you know they must be doing this all the time. I mean, the overall feeling at this point is of a band really, really getting it together. You know, they they got their chops back. And I love the fact that we get performances of the actual takes that ended up on the Let It Be album. We get to see the footage of those takes. And that did not happen before, correct? Correct. When I interviewed Glyn Johns, he, I remember at the time, was saying to me, oh, the sessions were really happy. Let It Be, you know, the Get Back sessions, they were very happy. I loved it. It was all good. No misery. No, it was great. And I, I didn't buy it at the time. I thought, oh, God, you know, he's just putting out you know the official the company sort. line. Yeah. Now I have to say, because I, I don't think this this is a whitewash. I no. know we haven't seen all fifty six hours, but I just don't get the impression this was a whitewash. And you know something else? We talk about you know the bad vibes in the studio, and you can feel the tension between Paul and George, and so on. But it never gets really nasty. You never get, you know, which you would get with anyone, no, but, but especially rock musicians, where it's like, you know, fuck you, and really getting on each other. It isn't. It's more nuanced. You were saying to me in the earlier shows, uh, you were kind of commenting that I was picking up on the tension vibe, say, at Twickenham. Yeah. By the time we're in this third episode... I'm also feeling the love vibe yes. between George and Paul. I mean, the John yeah. and Paul thing never really, to me, in mm. the film, ever is bad. They're, they're, they're I agree. Unit. It's yeah. It's, you know, and it, and and Ringo. You know, the other thing that kind of I never knew about, like, um, um, I've had occasion to hang around with Elvis Costello a few, back in the day. Not so much now, but I, I remember all the people around him calling him EC. They didn't call him Elvis. They didn't right. call him Deck. They called him EC. And in this film, you know, with it, well, R.S., you know, Ringo, right? Yeah. They're, I mean, when they kept referring to Ringo as R.S., I was like, oh, man, that's so cool. Like, I hadn't really thought a bit about that. Right. Um, I, I did want to mention, because um, we're in that period of the film today, where they're working on something, 
and Lennon gives him the line about just sing you know, cauliflower. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know? I know, I love that. Which is which is beautiful, and then yeah, uh, that's on something. That's on the twenty eighth, so that's the next day. And what a day that is in this segment of the documentary. Um, it starts off they're selecting songs to play on the roof, not all of which make it there, but you know that's what they're st- they're working on. And then, as you said, something. So, you know, and something that occurred to me is how seamlessly they work with Billy. He just slots in and they're happy. And, you know, that's about, you know, the Beatles, right? That's very informative. It just shows you how I think they were always open to anything or anyone who could improve the music. They Well, especially when it fit in seamlessly. Yeah. I don't mean in terms of they were always, you know, welcoming people into the group. We know they didn't do that. But. They're, once that guy's there, you know, there's no color barrier. There's no nothing, you know, in, in oh, their world. Oh, never color barrier. I think what it is is a talent barrier. And what what's one of the wonderful things about this film is you see Billy walk in, take off his coat, and instinctively feel what they needed. And I think that's what Lennon responds to because he mm. has no patience for anything. I mean, anybody else would need a ramp up. Or would be intimidated. These are the fucking right. Beatles, oh, you know. And instead, he's like, "Oh yeah, this could use this a little bit of soul." And like I say, he put the soul into the, these recordings, yes. and it's exactly what they needed yeah. to to fill them out. And now, it, in the last episode, you were sort of picking on, you know, all these nineteen sixty six. You know, they're wearing the same clothes from the sixty yeah, six yeah. tour, and so on and so forth. Well, Ringo was. Now, did you spot another nineteen sixty six thing in this third episode? Ooh, oh, what did Eric. I miss? What did I miss? No, I, I may have, and I'm just so tired was, that I don't remember. A, a, the bottles of wine on the label said 1966. Oh, no, I missed that. <laughs> oh, I see. It's all meant to be. 66 was the heaviest year. And, you know, I, I, well, the other thing is, is to me, all these years after watching uh, Beatles stuff for our lives, I was so happy to see Rocky make an appearance in the film. Because yeah. I didn't really, yeah. I don't remember Rocky being in Let It Be. Uh, I'm not sure. I'd have you to know, look but, again. But Rocky, for you guys out there who aren't nerdy as as, as we are, is that guitar that that uh, that Fender guitar yeah. that uh, psychedelicized. Uh, well, that that he one night, I guess, dropping acid or whatever mm. out in Esher, he decides uh, George decides to do a groovy guitar paint it, job. Isn't that the one we see him play on "I Am the Walrus" in Magical Mystery yes, Tour? Yes, yeah. and it has some of. There was a thing that was on European television, which um, if you came to one of my lectures, you would actually see this, where George, many years later, describes how he painted Rocky. And, and he gets up to the, to the headstock and he goes, and there's some of Miss Patty Boyd's nail polish over here. You know, it's just whatever was lying around. But Rocky is almost a character. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and character in the film. And it, it's interesting to see George kind of switching guitars to me. Yes. You know, which which one's going to work and and which one's not for certain songs. So that was kind of fun. But um, a really important segment then. Oh, comes. well I I hope you don't skip over the one that I think is also really important. Well, John telling George about the meeting with Alan Klein that lasts until 2 in the morning. All through the day. Alan Klein, Klein, Alan Klein, <laughs> Alan Klein. Yes, it, I was. Uh, we were both on the same uh, note. It, to quote John, he, he describes him as fantastic. He knows everything that's everything, knows where the money's gone, how to get it. He's going to look after me, whatever. 
you know, and George is a bit taken back by that. And he says, he even knows what we're like. He knows me as much as you do. Incredible guy. Yep. Yoko chimes in with, he owns half of MGM. And John says, the Stones get way better royalties than the Beatles do. And that Klein is going to make an LP out of Rock and Roll Circus. It's just so interesting to hear John basically selling Klein to George and Ringo. Well, because Klein sold, you know, I think all you need to know now is to go back to uh, the Ruddles movie and watch John Belushi, that shot where they back off from the mirror, you know, I love you. I want to protect you from people like me, (laughs) you know? And, and you know, that's the most genius part of, of the Ruddles is how John was you know, sold. Yeah. And, and you know, Klein, from what I understood, did a lot of research about Yoko. And his technique of reading people was, hey, John, hi, Yoko, nice to meet you. Hey, now, Yoko, you got to tell me, forget about John and the Beatles, a, a brilliant move by a Machiavellian yes. character yeah. to just go, this is the woman he loves and has upset the world by loving, and I am going to know everything about this woman, and he's going to be... Yeah. In my, eating out of my hand, Absolutely. and he was. He was, yeah. Did you like the bit where, you know, the Beatles, always after new sounds, latest technology, we have John playing a stylophone, which he well, just saw on TV, well, and Billy playing it to Old Brown Shoe. Well, in about seven months, David Bowie is going to use the stylophone to break his career wide open with yeah. with uh, space oddity, right? But here we are. Yes, I have a style. I have a stylophone right upstairs in my studio from this studio. Yeah, I have another one. And yeah, I mean, hello, David Bowie. You know, it's like the stylophone. If it had been used, do you think he would? Do you think Paul would have preferred the stylophone on Long and Winding Road to uh, Spectre's strings? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Just a thought. <laughs> um, the stunner for me that came next is John joking about something that is really not something to joke about. It shows no contrition on his part, where they're drinking that 1966 wine, and he says, I've had some wine, you know. Remember Bob Wooler? Well, yes. I, 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 you know, funny things in life. I've told you this before, that uh, speaking with Mr. Wooler back in, when I met you, the same yeah. weekend I met you in 1983, and, you know, Bob was very generous with his time, and how I wished that one time he had let me keep the tape recorder running, because I only have my memory of him telling that story, but he yeah. did specifically said, I've noticed you've got a tape recorder, but it must be turned off if I'm to answer this oh, he, next question. He had a London accent, did he, Bob? Well, he... You know, I was teased at the BBC for... They used to call me the Cockney Yank. I would go up and down the country. I think he tried to affect a London accent, but he, I can't do a Liverpudlian doing a London. You know what I mean? So I try to do that his... You know, come on, he always... He, he didn't come out there with a you know, real sing-songy Liverpudlian. No, he didn't. No, he had a gentle like, voice, Bob. It's for her. He but, never said that. But, you know, the fact is, here we are, you know, whatever, five and a half years later, and... It's just not something, you know, if you're embarrassed about that or feel bad about it, you wouldn't be bringing that up in that context, just even as a joke, like, you know, watch out, you know, I've had some wine, remember Bob Willer. It it just means he doesn't give a shit. Well, he never had to really personally write the check, and he certainly didn't write the apology. uh... It's not about what he did, it's about a conscience, right? It's about just feeling bad for the guy, what he did. He said it was the closest he ever came to killing someone, and it frightened him. But 
how did he always deal with things that frightened him with humor? Uh, you know, I guess. so I think he's still processing that. Yeah. I mean, there's certain traumas in Lennon's life that never went away. I mean, he, you know, at the very beginning, the first episode, you see about 10 seconds of a thing I contributed, which was Larry Kane's interview with John and Paul in May of 68 yeah. at the, in New York at the hotel. In that same interview, Larry Kane uh, is kind of trying to sum up, you know, kind of go over their career. Because uh, he had been embedded with them in '64 and '5 and '6, and you know he he knew them very well, kept kept up his re- relationship really forever. But there's one moment where he says in that same interview, "What was your greatest achievement in America?" And he says, "Escaping Memphis." Yeah. And Memphis com- yeah. comes up and comes up and comes up. It's Memphis and Manila. You know, the two times they really yeah. thought they were gonna die. Yeah. <laughs> and and so I think that's Gallo's humor on Lennon's part. The, the whole Bob Waller thing scared him. You know, I think you were the one that told me that it was really their first national press. It was their first national press, the back of the Daily Mirror, Beetle in Brawl. Sorry, I socked you. Yeah, <laughs> socked you. Yeah. No, sorry, I shoveled you with yeah. a shovel. Uh, now we get another track, Destined for Abbey Road. I want you, but I love it where it's John and Billy duetting on it and singing as I had a dream. I had a dream. first time he's referenced Martin Luther King and I had a dream. He does that early on when Billy joins the sessions. Well, once again, something that bothered him 
uh, in the 68 interview, he references, you know, because it's Mm. in May of 68, it's a fresh incident. It's the month previous. I think it it truly bothered Lenin. Yeah. And and, and I wonder if there's something within him, you know, when he records his next album with the Beatles, Shoot Me, and the idea of being shot and the idea of being assassinated, the idea of assassination, he talks about Gandhi. At one point, because all oh, those are the kinds of people that get shot. Isn't yeah, it? it's almost like he's, it's always it's always the most peaceful people. Yeah. yeah, and he he's it's precognition again. It's Beatles psychic stuff again to yeah. me. I think we talked earlier about the idea when any time they were slighted, the Beatles would remember it and refer back to it sometimes for the rest of their career. And one comes up that always makes me laugh is this idea of Dumontford Hall. Which uh, comes up right after this, uh, you know, the half a pound of grease paint. Yeah, we, yeah that's oh, right. Yeah. Half a pound of grease paint, right? It's like, <laughs> that's quite a little performance in and of itself. We have, before we get to De Montfort Hall, there's a group meeting upstairs with Klein after the session is over on the 28th. Um, and the next day, the 29th, Glyn Johns describes him as very strange, but very, very clever. Because, of course... Glynn had worked with the Stones, so he'd got to see Klein. Did you go on longer with Helen? <laughs> yeah, we were talking till about 12 or half 12. Went through everything, you know. Did you meet Alan before? I met him the other day, you know, and I met him at the circus. This is just sort of said hello or something. Strange guy, isn't oh, it? It's fantastic, yeah. He really is very strange. Yeah. Very, very clever. Yeah. But strange, man. <laughs> yeah. That's what it's about. We all, yeah. We're all hustlers. And the con man who's on the other side, he so is. he changes. All those other con men on the other side. Mm. He's extraordinary. He's capacity. I, I can't really explain it. Mm. I don't know if he speaks to you the same way as he does other people. Perhaps not because you're who you are. But he'll ask you a question and you're halfway through answering it. And, he, and if he doesn't like the answer or if it's not really what he wanted to hear, he'll change the subject right in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> that bugs me every time, actually. So in other words, they know what this guy's about, right? And you can tell that Glynn doesn't sound too keen about him. My German is a bit rusty, but isn't Kleiner mean little? Eine Kleiner. Eine Kleiner, middle class of music. No, um, <laughs> but Kleiner is small. It's like little yeah. or mm. small, right? Mm. Kleiner dance, little dance or something. Yeah. But it's just interesting that Klein and Kleiner, you know, little, he ends up being... You know, a, a bad, if, scary character, but he is little. He's little in in. Morality. But he doesn't play a Kleiner part in their story. No, no. Well, well this is. Let's accelerate the explosion. <laughs> he's Klein is the ultimate. Let's pour a little gasoline on that fire. See what happens. Now you said about De Montfort Hall. Yeah, there's much more of that segment, right? You know, where in Let It Be, all we see is the over-the-shoulder shot over Paul's shoulder, looking at John while Paul's talking. And John's just smoking and not responding at all. And as I've said before, you know, some people say, oh, that's him strung out on heroin. Bullshit. Here we have much more of that segment. And, you know, it's a discussion. It's a two-way discussion. And, you know, Paul's talking about that, you know, about playing the clubs like De Montfort Hall. He would like to get all 14 songs perfected and then play live at that type of venue. John says, we don't have time to do another seven tracks. He says, you know, need about another six weeks. Then he says four weeks. Then he says two weeks. But they still can't because of Ringo's schedule. Can't they get Clapton to play drums? Yeah. 
Paul says the TV show was intended for the previous album. Did you catch that? Yes, I definitely Yeah, did. so the White Album, right? And we've always said, oh, God, if they'd only had, you know, done but the White Album. But they've already gone past the White Album, haven't they? I mean, yeah. in a sense, that's, it's, boy, that was three months ago. Yeah. Typical Beatle time. Well, and typical Beatles, he said that they didn't do it for that because then they started writing new songs. Yeah. So he then says he wanted more than just a film about making the new album. You know, it's like we're ending up with the same thing again. A film, you know, all we're going to do is produce an album from this. He wants them to complete the 14 songs. The problem is they all have different concepts of what this project should be. Yeah, they do. And he seems to be the one at that stage who's saying, it's just, you know, we tried to do something new. It's just another fucking album yeah we got to do more than just another fucking album you know that's the thing that lennon used to criticize him oh he called up and said time to do another album and Mm. obviously this is revealing i'm sure that that line lennon uttered many times was in the mind of peter jackson oh here's some proof that paul didn't want to just do another album right you know he's it's really wonderful how peter jackson has found a way to debunk myths in this project and also as I say, to make everybody more human, more lovable, more vulnerable. As I say, Paul, you know, in the original Let It Be, Paul comes off as, you know, bossy and, you know, directing things. He comes off as so human in this. Yes. His yeah. range of emotions are the greatest in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the one who seems to be the most distant in this film is the last guy I thought it would have been, and that's Ringo. Ringo, yeah. He's right. kind of there. Well, it, well, especially at Twickenham, because... Ringo himself has said he's not good in the mornings. And, <laughs> he's uh, sleeping through a lot yeah. of that. And I think there's one point where he comes in, a, he's pretty much describing a hangover from the night before as well. Yeah. He's He's got red eyes in some of those shots. I think he's had a tippler or two. Yeah, I think so too. I love when there's the four-way band discussion about whether they should go on the roof. John and Ringo would like to go on there. George wouldn't. Paul's kind of... Iffy. Yeah, iffy about it, right? So it's not that Paul was pushing for the roof at all. Uh, How about Mike McCartney's cameo? (laughs) They're they're jamming on Dig It, and it's like he's sitting at the piano, and his hands are moving, and it's like, oh, my God, he's playing. And then the camera pans round, and the lid is shut. (laughs) So, you know, interesting, too, is there's references to George's solo album. Did you get that? Oh, yeah, well, that's right. I mean, I've heard the audio of that before, where he suggests doing an album of his own. As he puts it, he has enough songs to fulfill his Beatle quota for the next 10 years, and he just wants to get them out of the way. And he said, you know, that might sort of help keep us together. You know, we go off to our own projects and come back. He references that in April of uh, or May of 70 when he's in New York. And he says, well, why should we? He goes, yeah, you know, they broke up. But why should we deny the world Beatles music? We should come back to, you know, he was very willing to, once he'd gotten it out, you know, that he was going to have his own record. But think of that, though. He's really accommodating, George, because bloody hell, it's supposed to be just, you know, let's just go with the material, you know, the best material for the Beatles. This guy, as we know, has got now a kind of plethora of songs, you know, new compositions. As he says, he's got, but he's got this quota. He acknowledges that he just gets a quota. And well, they're all going to get a quota. There's the, the most important thing about that secret tape that you and I and yeah. Mark and nobody else can play publicly is where they address this in September of 69. From here on, 
You, Paul, get four. I get four. George gets four. Yeah, you and Ringo I mean? gets two. And then Ringo gets two that yeah. we create for him, because, yeah. unless he can write them but, himself. But that's in September. But at this point, you know, and he's come back to the group. They've had that meeting, got him back in the group, but he still has to acknowledge that he just doesn't get the same sort of bite of the apple. And it's just ridiculous. It's no, but he, ridiculous. you can see the momentum going in his favor very well because he's making it i mean he's coming up with the goods he is coming and he's coming up with them quick and people forget john and paul had you know decades to learn how to write songs george is now like five years into writing songs and look how fast he project you know by by the time something comes out he's eclipsed his heroes yeah you know he's you know or here comes the sun yeah same thing the two best songs on the album are george's and and he is absolutely taken off, and and then when he you know the next album is all things must pass, and of course it dwarfs anything the other guys can do. Suddenly he's in the driver's seat. Right. How much? I wonder how that must have felt to the other two. I think Paul was obviously intimidated. Yeah. Because he's he takes a while to really find. I mean, I I loved uh, the Ram album, but. Um, Sergeant Paul, as I used to call it. Yeah. Um, but I think he had a lot of trouble with the public finding his footing. I don't think the reaction to, to Ram was anything near what it was to All Things Must Pass. Right. I mean, in the mind of the the contemporary hippie, hippie yeah. one is heavy, a heavy record, and one is, that's nice, nice pop music, you know. And But George's, and then, of course, George caps all that period off with the Bangladesh and he's suddenly the heavy beetle, yeah. the one. Yeah. And how cool is that? And you're seeing the roots of it in this. Another couple of nice moments. Uh, I, I love it when they, they are jamming on Dig It and John's singing the titles of many of the songs they've been working on. And, and that, it goes into the ventriloquist version, I think, of two of us. Oh, my God, that's just so damn good. John's face, man. You know, to see, again, that visual, right? He's completely manic expression on his face right the way through, singing through clenched teeth. But but not moving the lips. And Paul picks up, and he's doing his ventriloquist and They act. actually go, they go gut la gear, you know? It's just, <laughs> it's just things that I would never think of. And it just, it boggles the mind to think, what goes on in all those other hours? Like, that we don't... Yeah. Did you ever think that the that John and Paul did ventriloquist? <laughs> no. So, like, to see it is just so amazing. Well, of course, Ringo did ventriloquism on the Lulu show. Oh, I forgot all about that. Yeah. Oh, wow. See, see, this is just yet another... Okay, so we're going to have having fun with the Beatles on stage. <laughs> ventriloquist. The Ventriloquist album. <clears throat> There's two new projects. I like it. I like it a lot. Also, one other thing occurred, you know, is like looking at that, they're all smoking, right? Oh, but not only they're yeah. all smoking, Michael Lindsay Hogg is smoking cigars. Yeah, that's pretty gross. And we've got Paul smoking smaller cigars, which I don't think I've ever even seen a photo of Paul with a cigar in his mouth. But... Right through these sessions, he's smoking these small cigars. Watching the level at that age that they're smoking, I'm more convinced than ever that um, if he whose name must never be spoken hadn't killed John, the Jetan cigarettes would have. Yeah, possibly. Probably within a, few, within a decade. Well, they didn't get Yoko, though. Nothing gets Yoko. <laughs> She's still there. <laughs> you know, uh, we're, now we're, we have arrived at... The rooftop. And, and it's an hour 23 minutes into this episode. And it's, I, I don't know about you, but it was the most emotional part of 
I, I've I've been building and building and building, and you get to this, yeah. and it's it's just how to take something that was really great in yes. the original film and make it greater. Make it greater, absolutely. I mean, he's got a five camera setup, Michael Lindsay Hogg, on the roof, right? Plus a camera across the street on the rooftop, three at street level, and another one hidden in the Apple reception. So they know the cops are coming, right? This is so contrived. I never realized it before. And then we end up, as you alluded to before, Eric, you know, with the split screens showing the various simultaneous angles and locations. I think it was a fantastic setup, actually, by Michael Lindsay Hogg. And Peter Jackson has just kind of elevated it in stunning fashion. What Peter Jackson did really skillfully, I was thinking before, okay, the rooftop, as we all know, was, you know, 40-odd minutes, and it's repetition of songs, you know, because they yeah. wanted to get different takes, you know, to cut in and, you know, um, and, and to perfect it. And I thought that's going to be really tough for the general public to look at the same song over and over. And what he did by effectively paying tribute to the original film by having the music going on and now you're down on the street talking to the pedestrians. Yeah. He picked like the really, the really, uh, that's the way to do it. In other words, so you, the, there's major takes of the songs that you really concentrate on. Yes. But you have the other ones. Okay, now we're going to talk to the people in the street. Brilliant. It Brilliant. Is, it really is because it's like it's happening all in real time. We get, you know, the, the proper sequencing, at least that's how it seems. Um, you know, because you basically have the people on the street You've got everyone on the roof, and we got the people in the control room. You know, you've got um, Glyn and uh, George Martin in there. And Alan Parsons, we see him finally operating the tape machine. All I've seen, Alan Parsons just sitting there. Standing around, yeah. scowling, yeah, but... making tea. <laughs> and then we find out in a caption that the Beatles are having a meeting upstairs, still uncertain about going on the roof, right up until the last minute. Yeah, I mean that, which adds the tension that was never there in the original film, right? You know, just because that that last bit of doubt, we we absolutely know they're going on the roof, yeah. But it's that last little thing, isn't that marvelous? It really is. I mean, this is the moment everything's built towards, right? You know, especially for us, oh, the course of eight hours and three days, and it does not disappoint. And it, I think that is one thing that the public. That section, especially, I think that is compelling to anybody on any level, even if you don't even like the Beatles. Yeah. It's just so beautifully shot and edited. And that the split screen is just, you know, the yes. multiples. I shouldn't even say split because it's multiple screens. There's three sometimes. There's, you know. Two, four. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, it is the way to do it because it allows you, the viewer, to watch this thing a hundred times. And not be bored. There's a lovely bit. And again, we can't be 100% sure that the two shots went together, but most likely is, where you see people on another rooftop waving yeah. and Paul smiling back at them. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 and I can thoroughly believe that that yeah. happened. Yeah, I, it looks you know, like it. The eye lines He look would right. do things like that. There's a film I turned up that Apple was negotiating to buy mm. from Detroit in 64, and the filmmaker... Uh, it was a privileged kid who could pick any seat in the house. Yeah. And he films Paul. He was into Paul because, you know, Paul and Ringo. Um, and it's obvious he's like leaning over the balcony yeah. to take Paul's film. And Paul looks straight at him and points at him, you yes. know, during, uh, you know, yeah. I don't I don't care too much for money. And like, you yeah, know, points yeah. right at him. Yeah. And you can tell it's so obvious that yeah. he, he's cognizant. I think that was part of Paul's showbiz thing that he obviously missed. 
Yes. You know, there's this one lady down on the street uh, that I must comment on. and The Scottish it, one? The one that says that it was it was jolly good. Oh, that one. And, yeah. and, and I'm thinking, it just, re- all of a sudden, I could see John Cleese yeah. in my head sort of dressed as Robin Hood going, jolly fucking good. Jolly you know, good. Th- there are going to be a lot of people thrilled with this third episode. The, the people, either themselves, if they're still around, or their relatives to see, you know, parents or grandparents or uncle, whoever, because we have a lot of the people in the street this time around. We have a lot of them. We have the ones that we see in Let It Be, plus a bit more. Yeah. We've got the old guy, you know. Oh, the guy, oh, yeah, it was something yeah. great to have something free in this country. That guy shows up again with a little fedora. Yeah, there's that. Yeah, the, um, the vicar. That's the vicar. But, the dirty but, vicar. Yeah, but the old. But there's the old guy who's, you know, yeah, you know, I love him. Good sound and all that stuff. And they give more of his interview. And the interviewer asks him... You know, would you let your daughters marry a beetle? And he said, "Yeah, they got a lot of money." <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, but as I said, there's so many people who were filmed that day and never saw themselves on screen. Yeah, and here they are after 50 years. Yeah, it must be amazing. It uh, must be amazing. It. I also love that the policemen who <laughs> are just set up here. You know, I mean, they they've been completely sort of drawn into this. And they become kind of comical characters, even more so here. And Surely I, this isn't necessary. Oh, I know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, but I love the fact that they're credited on screen, so yeah. we get their names. They're in the final title, you know, closing as credits be, as well. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they're a big part of this film. They look like babies too. That main yeah. Bobby, you know, he looks yeah. like about eighteen. I know. But what is fantastic is that. We get to hear their dialogue. Yeah. You know, with the guy at the door, with Debbie at, and Jimmy. at the desk. Debbie and Jimmy stalling for time. Well, you yes. know, yeah. they're going to be up there a couple more minutes. Couple, I mean, yeah. be what, what, what do you mean up there? You know, because uh, yeah. they don't even know they're on the roof. But the funny thing is, you see, the cops keep saying, you know, this is unnecessary. This is unnecessary. And, you know, we can hear it at the station, at the police well, station. Compton, or old Compton Street. Yeah, old Compton Street, right? And that keeps going on, and they're talking to different people. And then it's only after a time when they're saying, you know, but why do they have to be doing this? You know, isn't there soundproofing? And it's like, well, they're on the roof. They're on the roof. Yeah, they because well, the, so the, they were thinking this sound was coming from from inside. the building. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, why are they playing at that volume? Well, how about this cop? Uh, what an interesting character he must have been because he's sitting there and you know, without thinking, he goes. Well, surely they could film it silently and just dub it. Oh yeah, dub like, it. What the hell? What do you go to the? <laughs> was he an exec for United Artists? Well, I was in I was in film school, and then I decided to become a, a Bobby. <laughs> you know, I was just like, what? You know, how does this guy know that? I mean, that's a technical term which was not around in common people. Do you know what I mean? I know. Nobody would know to say dub. Yeah, I, I love it that while they're being reassured that it will only be another couple of numbers, the split screen has the group launching into one after nine oh nine. Yeah, you know, okay. it's, well, it's, it's called it's called stalling. You know, and don't I mean? you love the bit where some guy comes in to the reception from outside, and the cop asks him what's going on. Someone walks in, what's going on, and the guy says he doesn't know. And then we hear him talking to Debbie. He's coming to collect some money. And she says, well, we mailed the check three days ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I was wondering, where's my money? 
uh, whatever, you know, everything was a stalling tactic. But the, the one of the poetic things about the rooftop, and the cop underscores it by not understanding that yeah. they're up there, you know, thinking they're in a studio playing. Yeah. Is it it is the future from that moment on of the Beatles, and that is to say, you can hear them, but you can't see them. Right. <laughs> it's it's so it's so interesting. You know, people they're craning, you know, looking up. They can hear this cacophony coming from above them, yep. um, but they're not really sure. They can't see the Beatles unless you're one of the other people up on the roofs. Yeah, I I think the moment that I got the most. Maybe it was the the accumulation of uh, the uh, you know three days of watching this incredible stuff. Is it never fails the poignancy to me that Mal stood in the doorway. Yeah. Nobody stood in the doorway for Mal. No, I know, I know. It's but just when the so police damn sad. You know, I'm watching this, and it's like you know, seven years after this. Almost, Ma- uh, it was yeah. January, I think, yeah. as well. You know, Mel ends up with bullets killing him. And then yeah. four years or almost five years after that, John. You know, two yeah. of the people we're watching here end up being shot to death. Unbe- I mean, it's just it's, stunning. It, yeah, it, it's, it just, it gets me with Mel because I think, well, he was the first, you know, but he was always there for them and he loved them so much. Yeah. And, and, and you know, he was death by cop and his, he was, you know, now he had separated from Lil and he's living in Los Angeles trying to make something happen. He's got some young girlfriend and, you know, he gets blocked one night and is waving a right. I, I think I think I heard that the rifle or whatever, the gun he was waving around had no bullets in it. It was, right. it was just threatening. He was drunk. And just the idea that, as I say, it's so weird. Nobody stood between the police and Mal mm. and then he's gone. And, um, and that begins to me the great decline, you know, the, the horrible stuff. Yeah. With Mal's death, then you start getting, you know, John's death. You get mm. the attack on George. You get, yeah. you know, it it becomes this awful cascade it's unbelievable. of 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 really a way to kind of be upset. I suppose like, what a world. I was sitting here watching the end, going, yeah. "What a world!" You know, in ten years, well, eleven years, two of the main characters on that rooftop are dead yeah. by gun violence. Yeah. And it's like, ah, we'll never freaking learn. It's a real shame that they couldn't have contrived. They wanted the cops. It, it Clearly, they knew the cops were coming. They were going to provoke that. It's just a pity that they didn't somehow then contrive with the cops. You know what? Just take us away in handcuffs. You know we... That would have been, and Paul's precognition, that yeah. would have been the great ending. Is just like Literally, as Paul said, we're still trying to busk. Yeah. And, and the, the, we're in the, getting hauled away. I noticed in this, I can't be sure of, but it certainly looks like we, we get a long shot this time of when George switches on his amp. You know, his amp's being basically turned off and he switches it back on. And he glares at the cops as he does it. Well, yeah. Yeah. But I have to tell you that, you know, I sort of said about emotional. Early on in the rooftop, it's when John's singing Don't Let Me Down and the camera is actually positioned, you know, looking up at him and he's just belting and there's the sky above his head. And I just started to cry. I yeah. Mean, oh, was, yeah. I don't know. There was something about it this time. It hasn't done that to me before, apart from when he died. But, uh, you know, this time it just got me. And it got me, I think, on two levels, just about, you know, the greatness of the Beatles and, and watching them there, you know, their last live performance in front of people. And uh, also just what 
Peter Jackson and his crew have given us. I think just the, oh, yeah. the combined I mean, you know, weight of yeah, that. Yeah, it was, it it just, was it, an emotional release. I felt the same way. I mean, you had to sit there with the box of Kleenexes dabbing mm. away because it's just, you're, you're, it, it's something about it. Maybe I'll understand it later, but it is that emotional buildup over three days, and then you get this gigantic, beautiful payoff. And then you get to see this treat of the Beatles themselves being happy after the show on the yeah. rooftop. Yeah. And, you know... Um, oh, I, yeah, that, that footage in the control room afterwards. You see them like going into the control room, and then they're all sitting around, and they're discussing about, you know, George is asking about, you know, is that right that the cops didn't just shut us down? And it was it Ringo says something about we own London. Or, so, um, yeah, but, I, it's, it's the youth of all of it that got me, too. I wrote notes down. You imagine uh, Maureen is 22 years old. I know. John is 28. I love seeing Maureen so into it. You know, she, yeah, she's like... Dancing yeah, dancing or yeah, bobbing along. Or, you, yeah, You can see she's a fan. You know, she's yeah, a fan well, of the Yeah, well, she always was. I mean, but I, I think it's more the greatness at such a young age yes you know i'm yeah. 28 years old i'm just about figuring out how to make breakfast and and they they were old men making art you know yeah. by 28 yeah or you know, lennon was 28 and ringo is you know 28 in the in those scenes and they just seem so worldly and i mean yeah. and, and harrison what's he 25 yeah, I know. It's when a lot of people do peak, though, right? Artists, a I lot of them. I guess so, but it's just so overwhelming. I guess that's the word for me. Yeah, it's interesting that when they do first get into the control room, you know, they're all really enthused. George Martin is, and he says, this could be just a rehearsal for something else. But they, and that becomes clear then from what they say, that they would have stayed up on the roof longer to do more songs. But they now say, we're not going back up on the roof. And they quickly decide to record the remaining songs the next day. Um, and then we have a lovely bit where, you know, we see them all just having fun in the control room together. A lot of love between them, between Yoko and John, between Paul and Linda. And it's just a really nice atmosphere to end with. And I also love that we get a bit of Run For Your Life and John mugging and miming to let it be while Paul's singing it. Well, the, yeah, uh, I, I, there is a, a feeling of its denouement and, uh, you know, the real you know, peak of this project really truly was, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the rooftop. Interesting that George Martin says this could be the rehearsal for something else. Well, it was the rehearsal for something else. And that something else was Abbey Road because yeah. almost all of the songs show up save for three. Yeah. And I now with this series, I see the relationship between the album we know as Let It Be and the album we know as Abbey Road as being connected just the way Rubber Soul and Revolver were. I've got to tell you something else that this has done for me. I feel much more comfortable now about the Beatles' breakup. It, it just seems more inevitable, having watched this, that they were comfortable with it in a way. Yes, we know Paul would go into a depression afterwards, you know, whether that's accurate or not. But basically, you, you know, they're talking already about a divorce there, you know, yeah. at Twickenham. And it's obviously come up before, and we know it's going to come up again. Um, but they're pretty comfortable with it in some ways, you know, and, and looking at it this way, they weren't like the Stones and these other bands that could just, you know, just keep going through the years, even if some of them aren't talking to each other much. Um, with the Beatles, they always wanted to move on. Obviously, we don't know what would have developed had, you know, John lived longer, but it just 
I'm comfortable with it, if you know what I mean. I think the precognition of, of the flower pot meeting where Paul says, when we're old, we'll all sing together, no matter what happens. I yeah. think that would have, and in a sort of way it did technologically with yes. using, you know, uh, freeze a bird and all that. Yeah. So I think, uh, I, I have a similar feeling that hopefully watching this, if somebody watched it, you could see that Yoko and Linda have absolutely zero to do with breaking up the Beatles, you know, and, and I'm glad Paul makes the joke about, oh, Yoko sat in an amplifier and that's what did it. It's so obvious that they are becoming their own men at a time when most of us are still boys. And it's, it's you know, if Paul is that much of a perfectionist, let him go do it, you know? Yeah. It's so interesting. He's the perfectionist, and the first thing he puts out is is primitive yes. in many ways. yes. And all done by himself. Yeah. And then Lennon, same thing. He puts out, you know, the the most bare bones, you know, the Plasticona mm. band record is about as simplistic as you can get mm. instrumentation-wise. So he finally realizes what he wanted from the Let It Be project, which is no studio, anything, just play, done. So it's, they're obviously great artists who need to go out and explore what yeah. they are individually. Yeah. yeah. They, even Ringo even Ringo is an actor. You know, if you forget he he's an actor for about ten years after yeah. this. Yeah. Unique. Just totally unique. And, you know, these have been three majestic days that I don't think any of us are gonna forget. You know, just to have these drop one after the other. Just fantastic. And these three days will turn into see the rest of our lives going over this material. Absolutely, this you know? is this is. I mean, this isn't like you know you see a film. And it's like oh, I'll watch it again because I'll catch some more things. This will require infinite viewings to catch everything we want to catch. And and to, I used that Rosetta Stone um, as as very deliberately because I think. Looking through this over time, we're going to see connections to other things, both past and future. And I think it's just a gift. You know, Christmas came real early in 2021. Uh, what do you say, lads? Have it on Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Is that a yes? That's a no no. Sweet Loretta Fat. She thought she was a cleaner, but she was a prime. One, two, three, four. Too loud though. It's nice. It's nice, quiet. That, yeah. But it's it settled into it though after we started it, but much, much faster. One, two, three, four. Told you was a man. A bit faster, do you think? A bit faster. One, two, three, four. Picking up speed, I think. Yeah. Because I find myself starting off going. We get excited. And then ended up. And it's here the story about Sweet Loretta Martin and Jojo McCartney.
Uncle Tom is, huh? Cool down, son. Don't let me down, babe. Take these chains and set me free. Take these chains away and set me free. You do realize this tape is costing you two shillings a foot. Costed EMI, world EMI artist, and I don't know. <laughs> Doing it on that, you know, we keep doing it on going in and then saying no. I think you ought to do something else because I think you might, if you keep doing it, you're going to stay on it. No, 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 that's too easy. You always go backwards. Do you want to hear it? Yes, yes. Yeah, at least one. I mean, we'll never get a chance to do it again. Here's the final performance. You've got an audience now. Okay, honey bunch, let's hit it one time. Tootie fruity. One, two. Get back. Okay, keep it extremely good then. We'll carry on. Well, we were trying to go into Don't Let Me Down if we made it, but we haven't made it once yet, you know. Oh, we think of everything, and we're even going to go on to I've Got a Fever, if we really know. In that case, I'm going to change the tape. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah. Well, should we have another Ready? Siggy, another cup of tea? Or no, yeah. Siggy after this. Wine. Why? Oh, ready. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Jojo was a man who thought he was an owner. One where everything was right, just What's like the last bit of my guitar solo. But remember the one before that that we up. all said was all right? Yeah, well, let's yeah. take a level. We're the other always in it. Yeah, I'm just getting it. You're talking to the boobles. So you really, you really got to try and get every number just as good as you can go. It's sort of, that's the idea, is it? Because we'll rehearse it well, and that's such a one take, and that'll be, you know. Yeah, right. No, we need another week to do it again. She fits it while she can. 
The Beatles, Naked. Post production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartok. Yeah, because the Hilton tomorrow. We're doing it. Blasting out the sound in their palace. Fantastic, yeah. And every rock group in the world, in London, all the way. Just a building. Also, a platform, a loud speakers, yeah. To just sort of strapped into little boxes and this